1: And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other
2: host, Matt Sklina.
1: Matt, we've got Tom Davidoff on the program today. Yeah, talking about the election. Fan favorite. Fan favorite. He's a fantastic guest. Always has... uh
2: a lot of interesting things to say, so stay tuned for that. Yeah,
1: I really appreciate that Tom always makes the time. This is, I think, his third time on the program, maybe yeah. even fourth time on the program.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so really excited to have Tom back talking about the election. And uh, we are now in a liberal minority government for the time being. It appears so, yeah. So yeah, where did
2: you watch the the election last night?
1: I watched it. Uh, well, I worked until about uh, nine o'clock or so, but I my uh, my wife was having an election party at our house, so oh, yeah? I came home to uh, a lot of people in my living room watching. A lot and, of streamers. Uh, everybody excited. You know what the thing is? We couldn't figure out what the numbers were at the bottom that were constantly fluctuating. Oh. Right, we, we then, so there then was it would have was a very confusing night. That yeah. was pretty crucial. Yeah. Also, we <laughs> couldn't figure out how to turn the TV on. Um, but, yeah. no, Bit kidding. of a bust. Bit of a bust no, no, that no. party. No, there was an argument as to whether it was it was based on projections or, or how it was how right, it was because actually. They, you know what? They'd actually
2: announce an upset, and then it wouldn't change on the bottom. I exactly. That. Yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I don't know. We had it explained to us a few times, by somebody yeah. who seemed to have it figured out. But anyways, it was. Where, where did you watch the election?
2: Yeah, I was uh, glued to the tube uh, on my own couch. I didn't hear you were having a party, so yeah, whatever. I sent you email. Check your
1: spam filter. Uh, yeah, well, no, I mean, it was just it was just Braden and I and a few guys. <laughs> Sorry about it. The rest, of, the rest of the team? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like everybody but me. Exactly. Yeah. Um, anyways, <laughs> well, we've got a long interview with Tom. He's got a lot to say about the election and, and some conversation about the market. Because last time we talked to Tom, you know, we were in totally different uh climate it so. was january and uh, everybody was feeling a
2: little not not quite as bullish about the market so um yeah it's interesting to hear his take now
1: so without further ado here's our interview with the associate professor at the solder school of business tom davidoff enjoy guys <laughs> Okay, so we're here with Tom Davidoff, Associate Professor of the Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate at uh, Sauder School of Business. How are you doing, Tom? Very well, thanks. And you? Doing excellent. Yeah, great. Thanks uh, for taking the time again. Yeah, repeat, Repeat uh, guest here. So a lot of our listeners are, are big fans of yours, Tom, and uh, most of them will know you, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself for new listeners?
0: Yeah, sure. I teach uh, real estate and uh, real estate finance and economics uh, at the Sauter School of Business at UBC. Uh, I'm originally uh, from the U.S., worked uh, in a shopping center development briefly after school, uh, went to grad school, really enjoyed economics, and uh, so I've been doing economics for quite a while now.
1: Wow. What was the shot? Out of curiosity, what was the shopping center development?
0: Yeah, so we worked uh, so it was Forest City Ratner companies. You know, if you know the uh Nets, the New Jersey Nets moved to Brooklyn. That's an example of one of their deals and you know, the Nets were brought to uh Brooklyn so that they could sort of have sole source opportunities on an urban renewal site in uh downtown Brooklyn where we had also done a bit of a shopping center. It was interesting because You know, back in the old days, big box retailers in the States like Target, Sports Authority, Home Depot, you know, they did suburban stuff. They'd take a potato field, pave it over, and, you know, have a flat parking lot with a big building. And make a shopping center. And that was what they were used to. But we noticed the outer boroughs of Brooklyn, you know, of New York City, Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, Staten Island, you know, had huge populations that could support a lot of retail, but not a lot of these uh, big box retailers or category killers. And so we had to persuade them that, look, you know, the demographic's a little bit different. It's a hassle to get the parking done, but you can make a lot of money. And the, the format really took off. So so that was great. But, you know, that was it's it, been very interesting to watch places like Brooklyn when I was in high school school nobody would come visit me out in brooklyn they thought they'd get shot or whatever which was not a crazy uh conjecture on their part uh but now you know i i feel like i used to have credibility for coming from brooklyn but now people assume you know i know the right place to get beard wax or whatever it's very different <laughs>
1: Braden's holding himself back from asking. <laughs> um, so, so, where did you watch the elections last night? Obviously, it was a very interesting night.
0: Yeah, it was exciting. I was, uh, as, as I often am, sitting uh, on the top floor of my place, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's my boxers yet, you know, hitting refresh, refresh <laughs> at 10.30. I said, forget this. I'm not going to make a difference. Better, I should get a good night of sleep. And so I lay in bed, didn't sleep, wondered what would happen, and uh, around one fifteen, peeked at the results and thought, yeah, that's about what I expected. Wow. Although I will say, I don't know about you guys, I I thought the Liberals would actually uh, win by a bigger margin.
2: Yeah, I was surprised by the minority status there for sure. So so what are your thoughts? I guess any surprises?
0: Well, yeah, again, first of all, I mean, I'm not at all surprised that in my view, you know, had it not been for the Green Party... You could tell if the Green Party weren't running, uh, the NDP would have formed government, no Mm -hmm. problem. Mm -hmm. But I thought the liberals would get a majority government, and they still may, you know, without having to include in anybody else. So, you know, and a colleague of mine pointed out, you know, I'm American, I don't know these things, that you need to have a speaker. So you really need 44 plus one to be firmly in control. So it looks like the Greens are going to have, you know, some significant influence on this government. Uh, You know, I think it's hard to see that, you know, liberal plus green doesn't lead to mostly better outcomes than plain vanilla liberal because, you know, the stuff that people have trouble with the uh, political contributions and uh, some of the environmental stuff, uh, you've got a built-in check, but for people who are freaked out uh, maybe by uh, an NDP uh, on, on, on certain economic issues, uh, you've got uh, the liberal you know, uh, you know, status quo bias uh, going in that direction. So we don't know what will happen, of course, and for housing and every other market, I actually think that it really does matter how things play out in the next couple of weeks
2: yeah so obviously we it's kind of a wait and see approach here, but in my mind, the green had some fairly aggressive uh policy prescriptions on on the housing front how do you How do you see this minority government if it stays that way? Uh, what do you think the impact's going to be on housing?
0: Well, that'll be very interesting right because the greens had some pretty punitive taxes in mind, right one is to essentially ban you know out of the closet foreign buyers with a thirty percent tax rate I, I you know we already went from something like i don't know ten to twelve to three or ish percent foreign buyer when we adopted a fifteen percent foreign buyer tax if you went all the way to thirty, I think that's getting pretty close to a ban mm-hmm. effectively mm-hmm. uh I don't think that'll be i don't think that You know i don't think it makes sense to totally eliminate the foreign buyer when you're at that high of a tax rate because you're costing yourself probably considerable tax revenue already uh even putting aside the merits of having a foreign buyer tax at all so i doubt they'd go in that direction uh they did take the liberals existing step of a little bit of progressivity in the property transfer tax so you pay more as a percent of value in property transfer tax the more expensive the home you're buying and they really went, uh, you know, considerably north of that with pretty steep rates. I think up to 12% for, for luxury homes. So that could really whack those two things could really, you know, I think have a significant impact at the highest end of the luxury market. Uh, the other step that maybe would get some traction is introducing capital gains taxation. I didn't love the way the Greens did it, but I think, you know, if you make a lot of money selling your house, You ought to pay a capital gains tax, just like if you make a lot of money selling anything else. But, you know, all of those steps could slow down the market, particularly the highest end of the market. And I think, you know, there's this dance that people want affordability, but I don't think anybody much wants to live in the world where the real estate market totally shuts down. So fully implementing what the Greens had asked for, I don't think is in the cards, but it'll be interesting to watch, watch that trade off.
2: Right. Just out of curiosity, Tom, which which party, and we should have asked you this before the election was over, but which party do you think had the best
0: housing policy? Well, you know, uh, I'm a little biased because the NDP uh, came the closest to adopting something. We had put quite a bit of effort into the BC Housing Affordability Fund. The foreign buyer tax I like to see as a sort of politicized version. What we said is when you look at the lay of the land, we're an economy that, you know, if you make a living working for somebody, you pay high taxes on that. If you sell something, you know, you pay a pretty big sales tax all in. If you buy real estate and and hold it, you do pay a pop- property transfer tax, which you don't everywhere. But the property tax rate every year is really low, 40 basis points about, or even less now, maybe in the 30s in, in Vancouver. That's a very, very low rate of tax on property it's it's not a terribly small number you're paying, but it's not a huge number. It has a fraction of the very high values here you know that, that's really putting your thumb on the scale as an investment to say this is a great investment. So what are we telling the world? We're telling the world, hey, you know don't come to b c to earn a living or sell stuff, but you ought to come here to invest in real estate. Combine that with zoning rules and just uh, general mountains and oceans that make it very hard to build. And you're telling people invest in real estate, but you can't build. So what does that do? It makes for high housing prices and the high taxes make for low take-home incomes. And voila, you've got uh, unaffordability. So what we had said is, you know, forget whether you're foreign or not, but like just owning property ought to be high tax unless you're earning a living or serving as somebody who is earning a living's landlord. So it's sort of like the empty homes tax in Vancouver, except for instead of either you pay it or you don't, you get credits uh, for taxes paid for long time served in the home for being a landlord. And so we would be shifting the tax base under that plan from working for a living to just buying and selling real estate. So I think that's a very good approach to affordability and that's what the NDP went with. They also did something I like a lot that that sort of got some grief and that is the $400 a piece renter credit. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people say, "Oh, that's small potatoes, you should take that money and build apartments." But if you think about it carefully enough, And and the NDP, by the way, did say build apartments on top of that. But you know, spending some money on giving it to renters, you might say it's not a lot of money. But if you take not a lot of money and build units, suppose you take two hundred million dollars, which I think is ballpark, what four hundred dollars a renter costs. I'd have to check check my math a little bit. But suppose it's you know a couple hundred million dollars a year, that would build two hundred apartments a year in, in Vancouver you know, 200 apartments means almost nobody among the renters benefits. Mm -hmm. And so you're giving a huge benefit to a small number of people, as opposed to the $400 renter credit, which is a small benefit to a lot of people. Mostly we think, you know, when we are giving away a benefit to people, you don't hold it in the form of a lottery. You know, you want to give small benefits to lots of people. So I I, I liked both the tax approach and the subsidy approach of the NDP uh, better than the other parties.
1: Why do you think that the NDP did so exceptionally well in Metro Vancouver?
2: Yeah, was housing the driving
1: force there?
0: Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I'm. You know, there's a lot of multifamily housing in Vancouver, so I think you have a lot of renters. Generally speaking, I'd say if you're low income. And a renter, you know, for a lot of reasons, you would prefer, including housing, you'd prefer the NDP. If you're high income and a homeowner, uh, out of self-interest, you'd probably be more inclined to support the liberals. And then, you know, there's a lot of other, you know, idiosyncratic stuff. But, but economically, it's sort of right-wing, left-wing. And when you have an urban audience... Uh, a, they tend to be renters and young, and B, on social issues, they're they're going to tend to skew uh, left as opposed to right. So I think Vancouver is a very natural riding. You know, we begin to see this in the U.S. It's, it's you know the cities are all 100% democratic, and it's not necessarily economic self-interest; it's the cultural stuff. You know, it's a little bit of a different environment here. It's certainly not uh, you know I wouldn't call the D.C. liberals the Tea Party, but I, I think there is a right-left spread like in the states and urban rural tends to be a divide
1: okay so tom so shifting gears so we had you on the program in january kind of with some market predictions and at the time it was a very soft market we all didn't know which direction it was going to be going feels like years ago yeah it does feel like years ago but we were kind of recovering from the hangover of the foreign buyer tax um now what are your thoughts on where the what the market has done since then? We're in a. It seems to be in a. We're in a climbing market again. We're very busy. What, what What's your take on things? Well, first of all,
0: my take is don't play back what I said then. I think, <laughs> like everybody else, I was pretty bearish on where the market was heading this year.
2: I believe you said um, don't buy.
0: Yeah, <laughs> we well. asked straight up, but we were. It, it felt it, so different. It Felt very different at that time. Well, and the, and that's about when the market turned around. Um, You know, what is it that that turned this market to be incredibly hot on the condo end, especially? Uh, You know, I think the single family has also recovered since January. You know, there were so many headwinds. There was the foreign buyer tax. uh, There was the new mortgage qualification rules from Ottawa. And, and, you know, those those were both pretty big steps uh, that seemed to, to really have an impact on the market. Uh, obviously, foreign buyer less so as you get into more of the affordability range. Now, I would love to point the finger at the D.C. Uh, Home Partnership Loan Program, which allows uh, buyers who don't have huge incomes and who buy properties less than $750,000 to put as little as 2.5% down and get some money um, interest-free for five years. Pushing first-time buyers into highly leveraged home ownership is usually a pretty good way to heat up a market. The problem is, uh, and I will be the first to admit this, I'm not sure that there have – I don't know, but I'm not at all sure there have been enough home partnership loans as a share of the market – to explain, you know, probably some, but I don't know about all of the very large increase we've had in the condo market. So, you know, maybe it's just the psychology of a couple of adverse events giving way to just the fact that we're in a very low interest rate environment. That's got to be part of it. Uh, And uh, the market is continuing to adapt to those low interest rates. It could be you know, a, a market can build on itself, a return of confidence and FOMO or what have you uh, in the condo market and, and favorable demographic trends. I'm not sure. Again, I'd love to blame uh, or or credit the home partnership program for rising prices, but I, I think there's something else going on very likely.
2: Yeah, that's our impression as well. Uh, certainly, uh, we've helped a few buyers that have benefited from that um, or at least utilized uh, the, those loans from the government. But it it doesn't seem to be playing as large of a
1: role as yeah. uh,
2: i don't think it's driving it quite
1: I, I think that's another thing to be said i mean a, a lot of people actually if they can avoid taking the loan I, we're finding a lot of younger buyers are are not taking it but also the fact that you know different price bands seem to be very very active on the high end of the market right now
0: which is that's very right, surprising that's high end condos doing pretty well too it's not exceptionally just well condo. yeah yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so i mean I, I don't know do you think inventory is a big issue right now
0: Well, so something that's really interesting is, you know, some of my uh, Twitter followers got very mad when I suggested that the pre-sale flippers are kind of a good thing. You know, pre-sale flippers buy a pre-sale unit, they never occupy it, then they sell it. Well, that's just like acting like a builder, right? You're investing equity in the project, you never occupy the space, you know, your partner in equity, that should be creating supply instead of demand and eventually lowering prices. The problem is, I, as, as I understand inventory today, we're at a lot of starts, but not a lot of new completions. Mm-hmm. So it may be the pre-sale frenzy. Spec buyers are sort of competing with buyers in the completed home market. I, I really need to work that modeling out because there is a lot of pre-sale. Like, and the pre-sales are totally nuts, right? Like as nuts as the f- existing market is, you're getting what two thousand bucks a square foot in, in pre-sale. Which yeah, is, but there, you but, know, a lot of money.
2: Yeah. But there's so little of it, right? In Vancouver, there's, mm. um, you know, what it gets we're finding spoken is for pretty quickly. We, huh? Yeah, and there's and there's right now selling downtown. There's what th- three projects in maybe the last six months, and they're all sort of larger, kind of two and three bedroom projects, luxury. Yeah, you're right. Like over two thousand square foot um, for for some of them for
0: sure. But uh, let's go back to inventory a little bit because, and, and I want to maybe turn the tables and have you tell me what's going on. This spring, you know, as as, as many of us expected a, a soft market. The thing I was looking for, and I've done Twitter surveys on this each month, is I thought inventory was going to rise because stuff wasn't selling, and you know people tend to sell in spring, so you'd get an inventory build up. And mm-hmm. it's been the opposite. You're getting 100 uh, percent sales to new listing ratios, and the inventory, you know, has been flat at about 2,300 ish you know, the entire spring, you just have not seen that bulk up in inventory. So uh, there are a lot of buyers. Now there weren't in January. Uh, One thing you hear is people are not selling. And is the story? Well, you know, if you didn't sell in 2016 at those really awesome prices and great sellers market, you know, you must really not want to sell. What do you think the story is for uh, the lack of inventory on the market?
1: You know, it's interesting. I mean, it's a very good question, and I'm not sure we have a very clear answer on it. But the, the one thing seems to me, I'm meeting with a lot of home sellers that aren't aware of just how hot the market currently is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there is always a lag of what's going on in the market versus what the general public thinks is going on in the market. And I mean, obviously, you're you're highly tuned in. But part of it might be the fact that, you know, the media has been telling people so long that the market was was crashing and not doing well um, and whereas now just in the past couple of weeks we've noticed you know about a, a three to six month lag which tends to be when the media picks or, up on or what's even, really going or on even the a month level. or two lag yeah right Where or we, two lag. we were
2: feeling really busy when they were still talking about it you know that it was slow the other thing that i noticed in talking to people especially people that either grew up in vancouver or have been here for a generation or two there is in this is undoubtedly in large part because their families have made out so well over the last 30 mm-hmm. odd years in right. real estate. There's a bedrock confidence in this market, you know in say East Van homes, right? when it started dipping, the people that were picking up stuff in December and January were people that knew this market very well um, and yeah. and that that's my impression is that there's there seems to be um, you know people who have weathered this, the storms over the last generation or two that are really
1: bullish on the future. So is that, that's an argument for holding, is what you're saying. That's right. Is that, yeah. Okay.
0: And, you know, that's really interesting as an economist. Uh, and I, I got to get into more of the micro data. But in the U.S., even in the housing boom in the mid-2000s, it's very hard in the data to find a lot of evidence of people responding to high home prices by getting out of the market and cashing out. But there is the story of the halfers here in Vancouver who have been going away to Vancouver Island uh, and, and, you know, taking half the money, putting it in the stock market, half into the new house on Vancouver Island. And, uh, you know, because the price movements have been so huge, you have to think some people will respond. And maybe that's what I was saying is. You know, seeing high housing prices could lead to two responses. It could lead to, wow, what a great investment. I'm never going to leave. Or it could be, you know, this is crazy. I'll never have a chance like this again. And, and and the former group of people maybe expressed themselves in 2016. So you're left with a lot of the latter. Uh, it, it, it's, it's possible. Usually, it seems like what drives people's decision to sell a house is just a life event, getting married, uh, want to trade up. Uh, move out of the kid, you know, parents' basement, what have you, uh, or get older and, and cash cash out, go to a nursing home. But may, but maybe the price movements really have actually been so huge that you see responses to that in terms of when people are selling and what they're selling.
1: So yeah, and Tom, you know, we we wanted to bring up as well. We talked about it last episode, but that you know, Bob Rennie was out with the stat that 193,000 homes in Metro Vancouver are owned outright, clear title. Ah, uh, which amounts to about one hundred and ninety seven billion dollars worth of real estate. So you would imagine that that money is being gifted back into the market, and you know, with the transfer of wealth and probably having an impact on today's market,
0: yeah. the daddy money can build on itself, right? right. So uh, that that recycled family home equity, I think in two thousand and sixteen, everybody thought it was a part of the story. And even with a bit of a correction into January, you know, in the latter half of 2016, obviously people are still in extremely positive equity positions. So that part of the story of 2016, you're right, uh, did not go away. So um, the millennials using mom and dad or grandma's money are are still <laughs> still a force to be reckoned with on the demand side.
2: That leads to another question that we had about the foreign buyer's tax, I mean, it, we've talked about it on the podcast, kind of ad nauseum, you know, as it being kind of a punch in the face and, and the market kind of went back on its heels for a little bit. But it's, as you said, we're now down to, say, 3 or 4% uh, foreign buyers. It doesn't seem to be a huge driving force. It, was the foreign buyer's tax effective? Uh, do you think it's cooled the market in any meaningful way?
0: Well, I've been plotting out um, sub-market performance, And you certainly see a bigger dip in single family and in higher value, you know, better situated homes uh, in terms of the timing of the tax. So, uh, you know, I suspect that the super luxury end would be challenging to argue there was no effect. Although, again, you know, you're swimming into a tough stream, I think, by May or June. It it seemed like the market might have been slowing down a bit. So it's a little hard Mm -hmm. to prove that there was an impact, you know, uh, to the extent there was. Uh, it looks like after the fact, it really was uh, more concentrated maybe than, than than some people thought it would be, uh, you know, because condo did dip, I think, uh, in the second half of 2016. But I think it's pretty clear single family took a much worse uh, hit uh, than did uh, condo or townhome or duplex. And so, you know, that would be consistent with foreign buyers uh, being, A, being concentrated in higher end product and B, uh, you know, may be willing to switch to lower end product to pay, you know, the same 15%, but a lower tax amount uh, in response to the tax. I also suspect foreign buyers have probably been pushed to the pre-sale market, but that's a guess because I don't have good pre-sale data.
1: What are your thoughts? Do you have any predictions for the rest of the of the year here, Tom? Are you, are you well, feeling you know, bearish?
0: We, well, look, long run... <laughs> You can't, you know, where things are today is about as good of a guess as you can make. Uh, in the shorter run, you know, inventory, speed of sales versus what's available tends to forecast pretty well. I know Brian Yu from Credit One, who's a sharp guy, uh, looks at this and sees continued price growth, I believe, uh, through the year based on those conditions. I, I would just keep an eye on inventory to see if it doesn't start piling up. Toronto, you know, we saw the home capital group. It wasn't like the loans weren't performing. But, you know, if the capital markets lose confidence in real estate and people start to you know, have a shift of psychology, that's something to keep an eye on. Because obviously in a place like Vancouver, what people think homes are worth is is an important determinant of what they cost since it's not really construction cost doesn't set the price. So, you know, barring an increase in uh, interest rates rapidly, which, you know, doesn't seem to be showing up, uh, barring a collapse of confidence inspired maybe by some trickle down from home capital, uh obviously you know the market can always turn but i I don't see the same reason for bearishness uh, that we all saw at the beginning of this year
1: so hey tom uh just quickly we've got a new segment called the five wire would you stick around for Mm -hmm. that
0: sure uh yeah uh, real quick yep
1: yeah okay so uh what's your favorite area in vancouver oh kits kits
0: well that was quick
2: yeah (laughs) favorite restaurant or bar
0: well, let's see. It's going to have to be a restaurant. <laughs> uh, let's see. Favorite restaurant? Gosh, you know, I really like my sushi. So, uh, you know what? Though I, I'll go with outperformer. You know, I really don't tend to like uh, Chinese food. I, you know, I'm a bit of a health maniac, and, and that usually runs afoul of it. What's that place? It starts with a Kieran, I think. Oh yeah, that's actually really authentic Chinese food that I like. So you know, like relative to you know, I I can name a lot of sushi places, but but relative to the 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 general food, uh, I'm going to go with um, with uh, Kieran as an outperformer in class.
1: That's uh, that's the the first vote we've had for Kieran. It's a good place. Uh, Downtown penthouse or Westside Mansion?
0: Oh hell yeah, Westside Mansion. You heard
1: it here first. <laughs> Where do you take someone from out of town first place? Oh, Kits Beach. Kits Beach. And uh finally grab
2: a drink with Bill Clinton or Barack Obama. Uh
0: are we skirt chasing or talking politics? <laughs> that was going to be our next question. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Have a big night out with Barack. Well, Obama you know what? I
0: I I've got a very happy marriage and uh, you know I am going to go with, you know, Barack uh great guy. Okay, <laughs> awesome.
1: Excellent. So, Tom, how can people find out more about you and more of your uh, writing? And, and you Definitely follow me Well, they on can Twitter. always
0: follow me on Twitter at okay. Tom Davidoff. Uh, if you want to see some of my academic work, go to blogs.ubc.ca slash Davidoff or just uh, Google Tom Davidoff. And, uh, you know, also, if you have any questions about the market, anything like that, uh, economic policy, I, I, I respond to everybody. Send me an email.
1: Excellent. Well, well thanks
2: yeah. very much, Tom, for being back I think back this on. is your third or fourth time on our show, so thanks so much for your time.
0: A- anytime. Ha- and uh, when, when prices crash 30% next week, uh, you remember, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't hear it here first once again. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Tom. Take care. Thank you, guys. All All right, bye-bye. Bye now.
2: So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with Associate Professor at the Sauder School of Business out at UBC,
1: Tom Davidoff, straight out of Brooklyn. Tom Davidoff, <laughs> Matt.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, that used to get he used to have cred. That's uh, I didn't realize he was from Brooklyn, although I knew he's from the Northeast. Didn't you do a stint in Bed Stuy? Yeah, I did, but I didn't want to. It was it was when I was waxing my beard.
1: Yeah, I was going to say you came. After, I actually, <laughs> you I, I, came, you came during the mustache yeah, wax days. Yeah, I was yeah. a mustache waxer. You so. went straight from Williamsburg to Bed Stuy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah, but uh yeah, no, it's great to have Tom on. He's he's an awesome guest. I think that's his third or fourth time on um and he's a guy whip smart follows the market and uh provocative got a lot of opinions he's a great guest
1: for sure no and it was interesting having him recap a lot of the policy uh the housing policy for each party and i'm yeah. you know i'm glad we finally got to that now well no that i'm glad around. we waited till the day after the election it
2: was super useful <laughs> for everyone yeah yeah oh, so that's what the ndp planned yeah
1: apologies for that you yeah. probably you probably read it on your own though i was like gonna that. say
2: this might not be your only
1: source for news <laughs> <laughs> i hope not i hope not yeah <laughs> so matt uh maybe we what do we got to do before the end well, of the show we here we gotta- we're
2: having again private client services the research oh, tool yeah. we use on the site we have had a huge outpouring of people signing up yep. awesome feedback people are loving that as a research tool like we said before beta tested that uh it is the best resource out there for buying properties and monitoring the market yeah. so Definitely keep those signups coming. We love to see see people of the show signing up.
1: And again, just for people that haven't listened to previous episodes, it gives you realtor-level information, so you get days on market, sold prices, and you're updated usually about 36 to 72 hours before public MLS. You can go to scalinarealestate.com slash PCS and yeah. create your own
2: account absolutely and if you want to get in touch with me or you want me to sign it up for you 778-847-2854 or matt at com.
1: or if you don't like matt and you want me to set it up for you 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com or if you want Braden,
2: uh, or if you don't like either of us yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Braden, how can they get a hold
1: of you info at com?
2: and we should say as well we've had people reach out to us from toronto from winnipeg uh across the country asking about pcs unfortunately it's a it's a vancouver system uh, yeah it's, a it's vancouver system at least the one that we have yeah. so uh but no it's great to hear people across the country listening
1: yeah fantastic and if you do like the program please do go and rate us on iTunes. We've had a lot of ratings. Like we always say, I mean, the biggest compliment you can give us is by getting in touch or giving us a review on iTunes or one of the mediums that you get your podcast on. And we really appreciate that. Absolutely. So maybe we'll leave it there and we'll see you on Sunday for the short. Have a great week, guys. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Feasibility and efficiency prioritized every step of the way. Learn more at commonground-consulting.com or 604-807-6419.
2: We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy